0: Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe.
1: What is happening, gang? We are super pumped about this one today. So, this is the exciting, long anticipated. Part two of a scouting life in the NFL. This episode, a little different than the first one. This one is all about process. This is about what are the meetings with the collegiate coaches like? What are the meetings with the position coaches? How is all of this information collected? And then we do something that has probably never been done in traditional media. We actually learn how that information is collected, collated, and then reviewed by upper management to figure out Who are the players that we want to select? This one's all about narrowing. So this was brand new for me in terms of breaking my misconceptions about how a draft board is put together, how scouts and general managers actually think through what players they want to bring in. This is going to break a lot of ideas you had in your head about how the process works. And we're going to get to learn from Bill some of the players that he got to scout throughout the year, some of the best players he ever saw, some of the most amazing pro days, some of the biggest Bigger bus. So, this is a fun one. This is the Inside Football Podcast, and this is a Scouting Life Part 2. The Lamp is live, and we are here on another episode of the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Polian, and the fun continues again today as we hit up the second part of A Scout's Life. Uh, The first episode, everyone responded really well to. Thank you again so much for all of your feedback, and we've tried to incorporate some of that into how we put uh, today together. Um, And again, if you have any questions or anything you want to know about the show, or questions for Bill, uh feel free to hit us up on Twitter at @ifbillpolian. Uh again, our Twitter handle is @ifbillpolian and we will get it included in the show. Well, without any further ado, let's dive into it. How are we doing today, guys? Uh doing well, thank you, Scott.
2: All things considered, it's great.
1: Very cool. Rick is fighting a little bit of a cold, so we apologize for any sniffling. It will not be uh, not be tears. It's just, uh, it's just a cold. We're going to start where we left off a little bit last time. And in this episode, we're going to get into the scouting process and really do a deep dive into understanding the mechanics of a scout's life, a scout's life on the road, the process of evaluating this information, and then how all that information is indexed and collated. But as we do, we're going to begin this episode, and what's kind of interesting interesting about this is we're going to start our glossary this week with a term that we kind of got into in last week's episode with national and blesto but we're going to look at it not necessarily from the scouting organization perspective but from the actual event itself and so our top glossary term this week is combine so what is the combine how did it come to be and what is its significance in the in the role of scouting today
3: Well, the Combine, I guess, gets the most publicity of anything in the scouting process, uh, but it's really not the most important part. It's become a TV show, so obviously it gets lots of viewership. Uh, Originally, uh, the scouting Combines, Blasto and National, then known as SIPO, which is an acronym for Central Eastern Personnel Organization, Uh, had separate workouts. So the same players were going to two different workouts on two different uh, weekends. This was in the early 80s. And uh, the colleges at that time became very concerned about um, the players missing class because um, two things were happening then that, that don't happen now. The first is that the... Uh, colleges were very concerned about graduation rates and players typically took this college players typically took the summer off and had summer jobs. They did not go to summer school as they do now. Uh, So graduation rates now are not a problem. They were then. And secondly, the colleges were concerned about wearing the guys out, you know, traveling hither and yon. Uh, In one in one year, the the combine was in Detroit and the SIBO combine was in Seattle and they were two weeks apart and the players missed lots of time and et cetera. So uh, the colleges with whom we, we, we we in the personnel business have always had a great working relationship uh, got together and said, why don't you guys just have one combine? It'll make more sense economically. It'll make more sense for us and we said absolutely right. And so I think the first one if I'm not mistaken was held in New Orleans in 1983. And then uh or 84, the next one that I went to was in uh in Tempe in Tempe, Arizona outdoors by the way. Uh and for the first time in the memory of man we had lousy weather in Tempe, Arizona in January. <laughs> and uh the the uh the Combine was moved indoors uh, to uh, New Orleans for the next couple of years. And then ultimately, because New Orleans no longer wanted to accommodate it, um, it went to Indianapolis, where it has remained ever since. And the purpose of the Combine, as outlined by George Young many years ago, he, George was the general manager of the New York Giants, and then subsequently the um, vice president for football operations of the NFL. Um George said that the purpose of the combine was number 1 to get the physical examinations and that's true. Every doctor, <clears throat> every group of doctors from every team in the NFL comes to the combine and they split up the uh physicals on on roughly 340 players and uh and, and that data is shared with with every team. And invariably, every year, we find one or two players with an undiagnosed condition that might, in some cases, be fatal if they played football or certainly would impede their careers and later life. So um, this is the most extensive physical that these players will ever have in their lives. And and it's the most extensive probably anywhere in American society. Um, So that's number one. Number two is the ability for the coaches uh, who, frankly, don't know these players. Excuse me. Keep in mind that the coaches have been coaching all the way through uh, to the month of January. They've only begun to take a look at these players on tape. So it's it's an opportunity for them to get to see the players, talk to them, et cetera. And for the clubs to administer in most cases now, the final personality test inventory that they'll use to determine the player's psychological characteristics. So number one is medical. Number two is psychological. Number three is measurables. This is the official measurable that is used, height, weight, speed, arms, uh, arm length, wingspan, uh, hand size, etc. That are represent the official statistics that you see bandied about uh, as we get ready for the draft preparation. So, uh, the 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 important parts are, in in order of importance, um, medical, psychological, measurables. The on field stuff is, if not meaningless, certainly certainly. Uh, very far down the list of importance. And George Young often said that if we wanted to justify the combine expense alone, alone, the medicals would more than justify it. And it is the most important information we get. Um, the on-field stuff, which you're led to believe by television and radio and print people, means so much, um, means very little uh, i i've never based or never heard anyone base a uh a, a position in the draft the final grade on how the player did in the combine and i, I if i looked at six combine tapes in thirty five years that's a lot um that is highly highly overrated the only thing that really counts is the measurables the 40 yard dash and the number of, and the and the metrics for Individual drills that clubs use different drills to, to to measure. For example, the three cone drill is used by teams that um, that employ the Tampa two defense um, extensively. It's very very important. Um, the forty yard sh- the twenty yard shuttle is 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 really favored by teams that that are heavily three four because they, they both drills replicate what a defensive player has to do. So the measurables for those are really important. Those are part of the metrics. Um, and, and last and absolutely meaningless are the interviews done with the media. Uh, <laughs> I've never paid any attention <laughs> to any of it. Any of it. <laughs> I know very few people who do who are not in the media. And uh, it means nothing. So-and-so didn't do well with the press. Who cares? We're not hiring him to be press secretary. We're hiring him to block and
1: tackle. So let that be a lesson, guys. If you want to say something insane, say it to the media at the combine because it doesn't matter. That's correct. Let's get into stuff that does matter. So the the stuff that does matter, uh, and we we got into this a little bit in last week's episode or uh, in in a few episodes ago, but what what really does matter is the college visit. And so this is is a place where the scout is going to spend a vast majority of their time. So how many visits are scouts allowed to, to take to a university or a series of universities to see players?
3: There's a couple of answers to that. <clears throat> and you're correct, Scott. It is, it's really important. The first answer is uh, as many as the college allows. Now, in this day and age, largely because Nick Saban and Dabo Sweeney are literally open virtually every day of the year. And because they correctly and accurately recruit on the basis that we're going to get you ready for the national football league. Uh, Everybody else has to follow along. Uh, It wasn't that way in the past. And, uh, and our co-host Rick Schaefer is, is absolutely responsible for this. Uh, The college is closed down. Uh, would not allow Pro Scouts uh, uh, on the campus. They wouldn't allow them in the press box. Uh, They tried to prevent us from buying tickets to games unsuccessfully, by the way. But that was all because Rick uh, represented uh, Herschel Walker in signing with the then New Jersey Generals of the USFL, which was then owned by, of all people, the present occupant of the White House. So that caused the college's to simply shut their doors and they wouldn't allow um, pro scouts on campus. That that boycott, if you will, was formally broken in uh, 1993 when Grant Taft and Commissioner Tagliabue and I, Grant Taft was the head of the American Football Coaches Association, got together and worked out what amounted to a protocol for visits to colleges. So now when the college is open, uh you are allowed in uh, w- when the football program is open excuse me you are allowed in uh and uh and that can come at any time now the clubs make their own decisions as to how much time uh how many visits an area scout will make that varies from four in a or five in a calendar year uh to two or three depending on the philosophy of of the team. With the Colts, we had as many as five. Uh, With with the other teams, keep it to two or three, depending, of course, on the number of prospects at the school. So Alabama and Clemson and Ohio State, as an example, get many, many more visits uh, than will Texas Christian simply because they have more prospects. Uh, it's a function of the number of prospects at the school, but the job is still the same and uh, whenever you visit, there are certain protocols that you have to follow.
2: So Bill, when you when, speaking of the protocols, when, uh, and I think uh, people like to sort of get into the weeds in some of this stuff, how does the scout go about really uh, announcing that he's going to come on campus? T- to whom does he speak and uh, either get permission or at least line things up?
3: Well, in the dear, dear old days of yore, uh, when college football wasn't the industry it is now, and pro football wasn't the industry it is now, uh, when I was carrying the sixteen millimeter projector around with me, along with my briefcase and my suitcase, <laughs> uh, I, simp- I simply—it's uh, <laughs> true—I got a dropped shoulder because of it. By the way, <laughs> it's <laughs> heavy. <laughs>
1: And those things weren't light back in the day. No,
3: no, heck no. They weren't light. <laughs> the, the, uh, uh, everybody carried their own projector and, and, and you were given the film and, and away you went. But, um, in those days you would simply check in with the head coach's secretary. And more often than not, he'd come out and say hello and say, Hey, the film is down the hall in such and such a room. And, They'd hand you uh, a stack of films uh, that, that, you know, would cover maybe four games, five games. Uh, one reel was generally a quarter. Uh, so you had 12 or 14 reels and away you went. And if you if you broke the film, which often happens when you run it back and forth, it was your responsibility to splice it. So I learned how to splice <laughs> film early on in my career. Uh, and, and by the way, Scouts who didn't fix broken film, who didn't splice it, were persona non grata. They were called <laughs> out <laughs> vigorously and- by their
1: their peers. Um,
2: I was just gonna say you also got a backup career as a film uh, as a projectionist.
1: <laughs> yeah, if all else fails, Bill, there's there's always time yeah. to run the projector at the movie theater. Right. Exactly. Right.
3: That's right. Right. Um, the nowadays. Every every uh, Power Five school has a director of player personnel or a senior football official who's not a coach, who is responsible for the scouts. He's he's what's called the pro liaison. In the group of five, it's usually uh, either a senior coach uh, or. Uh, a, a senior football official they don't have as many people in the infrastructure as the as the power 5s do so Nevada for example their pro liaison was was the the essentially the player personnel director, assistant athletic director in charge of personnel um, in, in in at Alabama it's a specified person in 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 in, in lo- up until a while ago it was uh, Joe Pendry who had been a head coach uh, in the USFL and a longtime coordinator in the NFL, and knew everybody in the in the business, and that's pretty typical these days, particularly in the Power Five. Yeah. So, uh, when when the area scout's planning to come in, um, he calls the um, uh, he calls the pro liaison at the school and says, uh, "I'm planning to be in on the following dates. Um, is that okay?" And in Nine out of ten cases, or eight out of ten cases, they'll say, "Sure, it's okay," and uh, and away you go. You come on to campus. Parking, by the way, is a, is an issue. Uh, campus police are, uh, are are can't wait to issue tickets to scouts because uh, they know that <laughs> they'll be paid, <laughs> 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 and, and and so. If a school provides the scouts with parking, that school is uh, high on the list of those that are going to go to heaven, in, in the scouts' uh, uh, opinion. And uh, But, but you, you find a place to park, and uh, you show up in the building, you introduce yourself. Uh, it has become tradition since back when I was carrying the projector around to bring donuts uh, for the staff. As the staffs have increased, it's more than it's more than twelve, uh, and you and you bring donuts and and leave them. Uh, in, in almost all cases, we started it with the with the bills actually, and it spread through the industry. Uh, we send the pro liaison and the secretaries a gift every year. It's it's just logoed merchandise or a notebook or a calendar or something like that. Nothing lavish, but just as a means of of saying thank you for your cooperation. And uh, so, you, you know, you report to whomever you're assigned to report to. And now virtually every Power 5 school has a scout's room with uh, half a dozen or so computers set up. And uh, and you just plug into the system and, and and you watch your film and away you go.
2: Hey, Bill, I do have to say one thing. There cannot be many pro liaisons who are as charming as Joe Pendry our colleague from the Alliance of American football.
3: Yeah, so Joe is terrific.
1: So mechanically, are, so are you typically like from a scouts perspective, you're usually there by yourself meeting one-on-one with the pro liaison. Will there be other scouts? Do you get kind of exclusive one-on-one time? How, how do the mechanics of that work? Or is there a competitive advantage to try to be there by yourself?
3: Well, you know, it, it used to be that people were trying to get there early to get the the film uh, first and whoever had the projector uh, had an advantage but that's not true anymore because everything is computerized and you're watching um, the tape on your own tablet or you're watching it on one that the school has set up for you. So th- they'll tell you what when they open usually somewhere in the 7 to seven thirty range and the guys will show up with their donuts and, and get to work. Um, the way that the area scouts uh, responsibilities are laid out and the number of schools that they have to cover, which is, can, can be upwards of 40. Um, they're generally around Monday through Thursday. And with 32 teams, you're probably going to always have four or five, sometimes six people uh, available uh, and, and there on any given day. There are certain days, uh, particularly leading up to big games, where you might have, you know, a dozen or so. But there's always very, very often less, more than four and less than a dozen virtually every day, especially at schools where there are a lot of prospects.
2: So when you meet with the the pro liaison, other than directing you to the film, is he the one uh, who sets up the other meetings with people that you're going to be able to meet with, like assistant coaches and so on? Or how does that come about?
3: Well, it's divided on the calendar into two things. During the season when the team is practicing, you're really only meeting with the pro liaison, and you might have a drive-by with the head coach. Uh, Almost always, particularly if there's a large group of scouts, the head coach will come in and make himself available and say hello, but not much more than that. He's very busy, obviously. Um, then the the pro liaison will give you all of the background on the player. Uh, most schools have a, uh, a, a what's called a poop sheet available, which is a one pager, which tells you all of the the player's uh, appropriate data, including medical. Um, now it's not up to date, obviously, because there's a season going on, but it's up to the up through and including the previous spring. Uh, so you get that as a takeaway, and then you the pro the pro liaison will will answer questions and and give you a very good thumbnail survey of the player. And they and they very few power five programs will try to sell you on a player because they realize. That you're going to do your own work anyway. Um, some of the lower-level schools, the group of five schools, particularly those that don't produce a lot of players, who know that their players are are fighting from behind, so to speak, in order to get noticed and get get notoriety, uh, will will sell a little bit harder, which is okay, and it's good, um, it, it's helpful, uh, but that's really just nuance and then when the season is over and the pro day takes place that is or the or the general manager and the and the personnel director visit or the head coach visits the school in the off season then you will get to meet with the trainer you'll get to meet with the uh head coach you'll get to meet extensively with the position coach um, that 's when that 's done in the off season when they 're not busy coaching
1: how much inside information so uh- I think that this is probably a tricky thing for the pro liaison in terms of are, do they typically give the same information to everybody? But it's like any human business where I would think, you know, different scouts and different area scouts befriend the pro liaison differently. That could definitely be a source where at some level, depending on the quality of the relationship, you could get better information. Or are the pro liaison's pretty agnostic in terms of how they're churning that information out to everybody.
3: They strive very hard to be agnostic. Because it's in their best interest to do so. If a program, for example, is uh, has a reputation for favoring certain teams over others, then you know you're going to end up not having the teams who are don't have most favored nation status um, doubting what you tell them. So everybody strives to be agnostic and give you as much, pertinent information as they can <clears throat> excuse me now uh, the security information like arrests um, difficulties with the law difficulties um, in 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 high school, for example um, they're not allowed to give number one and two uh, they don't want to get into it anyway and they may not have Correct information in a lot of cases, so it's up to your security department doing their searches in the off season um to come up with that kind of stuff and 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 you know depending on the security department they uh, they, they, they do a good job so the the pro people in the school itself are usually very forthright very honest very forthcoming but agnostic about it. They don't treat anybody specially. When
2: you, when you do get to the point, um, when, uh, higher up folks in in the chain are you know, attending, uh, this, these sessions, uh, say when the GM's there or, uh, the, uh, college, uh, uh, scout, uh, sorry, the, the head of college scouting, um, is, are those when you meet with the coaches? Are those exclusive, or are still multiple teams in there uh, trying to uh, talk to a coach at the same time?
3: Well, pro days are structured in in uh, in, in, a, in, in a generally generally the same way. So um, let's uh, let's presume that we're having pro day at the University of Missouri uh, when the young the young man who's sexual orientation, got so much uh, publicity. Michael Sam. Yeah. Michael Sam, yes.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Okay, there were a number of GMs, uh, probably close to half a dozen. Uh, there were a couple of head coaches. Uh, well, let me, like, excuse me, let me go to the most important, with like Johnny Menzel, which was the biggest circus of all. Uh, there were probably a dozen GMs. Uh, there were at least four head coaches. Uh, I was there covering it for ESPN and was given access to the, uh, to the, the pre-workout meeting. Um, and so the head coach came in and spoke to everybody and, and Lord knows the room was filled. So it had to be close to 75 scouts and, 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 directors there so the head coach came in and spoke um, briefly but gave an overview the offensive coordinator spoke and was more detailed and took some questions the uh, a trainer came in and spoke at length and they spoke not only about Johnny but everybody else who was going to work out that day so that's a length that's a lengthy meeting. Uh, the Missouri meeting was the same way. They spoke about uh, uh, everybody that was working out th- that day. There were less, obviously, less, less people working out that day, but uh, still the same information was covered. And then at, at Texas A&M, Coach Sumlin met privately with each of the head coaches and general managers who were there. He, he met them privately in his office. Um uh, and was very forthcoming. Um, the uh, The bottom line is that it follows a general uh, order, and the information is more detailed. Um, often, uh, if there's a position coach there, he'll meet with his counterpart on that staff, and they'll talk football in general and the player in specifics, um, sometimes, particularly if you have a private workout, which is different than the pro day, um, you know, I, I would often bring along an assistant coach or a coordinator to clinic up the staff as a, as a means of, of, of simply currying some favor with that school. Um, and, and he would put on a little bit of a mini clinic for the coaches while uh while I met with and myself and the head coach met with the with the the, the head coach at the school um but again it, it's it's usually full disclosure of information the only time that it gets in any way uh out of that lane if you will is if you have a close associate, someone who formerly played for you, someone who formerly coached with you at that school, then via phone or with a a private meeting, uh, oftentimes off campus, you know you, you'll get a little more information. But the schools try to make it as as down the middle as they as they possibly can, and they are you would be amazed how candid they are the if you sat in a meeting you would be astounded how candid they are hmm. uh because it's nothing like what you hear from the uh the uh analysts on television or commentators or read in the in media nothing at all like it
2: i was just going to say you know on draft day uh you know when the analysts are, are talking about that stuff every single guy once he's drafted they they basically tell you why this guy's going to be in the pro bowl you know all the way down to say the 5th round i mean it's just it just it doesn't make any sense so it's good to hear that you know you're you're really getting an accurate honest portrayal uh, of a kid you know when you're sitting with them bill
3: oh yeah i mean look it, it it's in everybody's best interest to be honest because if if you're not it's going to come back to haunt you Uh, For example, we would never draft anybody in the first round in Indianapolis where Tony and I had not spoken privately with the head coach, often by phone. Uh, But but the evaluations that we got uh, were astounding, absolutely astounding, and completely and totally honest. I can remember a a coach uh, saying to us, you're going to love this guy, but you know you're going to have to manage that injury for every day that he's there. So if that's important to you, um, don't take him because you, you, you're going to—that's going to be a problem. And uh, I mean, we 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 thank him very much. I mean, but that's not atypical.
1: Why do you think that the media's conception of this is so disconnected? i mean from an outside, just strictly from a fan's perspective, it's crazy that, I mean, to Rick's point, it's insane that literally, even watching the draft this year, every player selected from one to seven, it's all glowing. But you know, just intrinsically, that can't be the case. Is there some sort of media analysis that it's better if it's projected this way? It's bizarre that you have so many... "Quote unquote," inside people, kind of even in the media this day, these days, that the the conception of what a player is in the public eye versus what the reality of it is from a football sense is so diametrically opposed.
3: It's a very good question, and there are a number of there are a number of reasons why. Number one is they're not insiders. Uh, just just to make that point, when I when I went to work for ESPN, I had forgotten that I wasn't in the national football league anymore. And so I went to a pro day and I popped in and said hello to the head coach who was a longtime friend. And he said, you going to the meeting? I said, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll sit in the back. And he, yeah, he said, sure. You're welcome. So I went there and I heard the whole meeting. And then, uh, I, I, there were other, other media people there who were not allowed in. And, um, uh, and I got a, Telephone call from my boss who said, why did you go to the meeting? I said, because I always go to the meeting. <laughs> 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 he said, well, you're not allowed. <laughs> We're getting complaints from from other other sources. <laughs> <I> said, okay. <laughs> so I always made sure that, that when I got there representing ESPN to, to say, you know, is this open to the, is this open to the. Us and because we were covering it in most cases, it was, but it just they're not insiders. That's the number one answer. The the second thing is that uh, most of us in the scouting world, if we've done it for any length of time, take the following approach. And I used to always, when we finally put the board together and we were arguing over where a player ought to be on the board, I used to always say the following to everyone in the room. If he's going to fail, tell me why he is going to fail. We at the club level in the scouting business are in the business of reducing the number of players that that we operate with. So we start with 5,000, we reduce that to 500, and then we're trying to reduce it down to 100 that we think are draftable because we're trying to limit our losses. So we go at it from a risk-averse position, whereas the people in the media are always looking for the bright side. Here's what this guy can do. He may not be able to do 15 other things that he has to do to play, but he can do this one thing. And, and because in essence, they're saying, this is why we're telling you his story. This is, and, and nobody wants to go through a, a whole uh, three days worth of shows saying, well, this guy can't play. That guy can't play. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> Although maybe they
1: would. I, I think I might watch that show.
3: Susie Culver famously nicknamed me buzzkill bill because right. <laughs> i'd actually be sitting in a production meeting and someone would say you know this guy's really got something going for him bill what do you think I, he couldn't play dead in the western you know <laughs> 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 that, that, that was tongue in cheek of course but you know the answer is gee he's not a very good prospect because he isn't big enough or fast enough So you know that kind of thing so it's just the way they look at. We look at at the world now. Build build walls, and it must be. I've got to give him credit for this because he changed uh, or refocused uh, my approach to things um, based on a conversation we had many years ago. He said, "Look at. It, it's hard enough to find the, the the real the good players in the first and second rounds. After that." If you concentrate on the negative, nobody can play. So concentrate on finding the one or two things he can do well within your system and, and, and grade him that way. And so that, that changed my approach and subsequently when I became a GM, it changed my approach too. So we, we spent a lot more time looking for the positive than the negative, but, that's within a, a universe of 500 people right? not not 5000 uh the patriots for example are always looking for versatility so they will take in the 7th round an edelman who was a option quarterback in college and make him a wide receiver they'll take a safety that was a pure three deep safety in college, and they'll make him a corner. Um, they'll take, a, 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 you know, a, a defensive lineman and make him a linebacker, uh, based on the traits that they see in him, and particularly based on the workouts. The Patriots' uh, individual workouts are, 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 for what they do, are critical, and they do a great job of it. So everybody looks at it a little different way, but. In the end, we're trying to reduce the number of people because we wanna we we wanna try and hit as often as we can, knowing that you can't it, right. you know you never the best of us bat five fifty um the on a scale of a thousand uh whereas television is looking to and the media are looking to tell you a a story and and they don't have the inside information that we have just. Very simply, I used to say this on the air at ESPN all the time. I can't give you an accurate evaluation of the player. Why? Because I don't know the psychological, and I don't know the medical. Nor should I.
2: Right. Um, you know, talking about that winnowing process that you've been describing, where you go from five thousand to five hundred to a hundred. Uh, how much tape? Let's say, just starting off with the, the tape aspect of thing, How much are they watching? Before they say, no, nah, I'm eliminating this guy. He's, he's not making the next cut. How much do you have to see?
3: A minimum of four games. Absolute minimum. And most everybody now is watching at least nine games.
2: Um, are those available, you know, like XOs or something like that? Or do you, or do you really still have to go to the school to get all, all the uh, the video?
3: No, the, the NFL has a, a uh, what's called the Dub Center. It's located at NFL Films. We worked out, I mentioned that 1993 agreement, which ended your boycott. Yes, the, the, yes. The <laughs> cause. Um, in so doing, we agreed to certain things and the colleges agreed to certain things. And one of the things that we agreed to and they agreed to jointly was that they would ship all of their game tape to the NFL Dub Center, who in turn would replicate it and send it out to each of the 32 clubs. What was going on at the time was that uh, the uh, the uh, clubs, uh, certain clubs uh, were, were buying tape from schools uh, so that they could have it in their inventories at the office where the assistant coaches could look at it, the GM could look at it, etc and so uh you know it was turned into a lucrative deal for uh for uh, uh certain college video directors yeah. and if you got the right guy he was in the right conference he was supplying you with with every team in the conference so uh that that was a black market that needed to be stopped and and
1: yet again black market <laughs> scouting tapes who knew
3: yeah yeah,
1: yeah. who knew yeah <laughs>
3: So we stopped it and um and, and now uh the uh the colleges send their tape directly to the NFL Dub Center who then sends it to the each each individual club and the individual clubs in turn cut it up and, and make individual highlight films for, for each player. Not the kind of highlight films you see on television but in depth, yeah. you know, hundred play tapes. And now, with the technology being what it is, when when you get to a school late in the season, for example, when you're making your November visit, uh, if you're on a three visit, if you're on a three visit calendar, you would go in training camp in August, mid-season, and say uh, mid-October, and then end of season, November, and uh, around Thanksgiving. And by that time, the school will have let's take Jerry Judy example. Alabama will have a, every- touch, what's called an every touch tape for jerry judy every pass thrown to him, and they'll have it cut up, and you can you don't even have to find him on the film it It, it really saves a lot of time.
1: Is that just for that season? Uh, for, no or that's for in his that. season. Career so the mechanically you've got the central repository of tape from the games that you can get from the league. Did they have another central repository of practice tape or is that stuff that you've got to get on your visit? So like these cut-ups, practice tape, what's the delineation of that?
3: They will, uh, they will often make the, schools will often make the cut-ups available to you. But nowadays they basically do, the same highlight tapes that your guys are doing back at your facility. As I said, later in the season, you come in, you get it. Practice tape is, is generally not available. And in the old days, um, coaches like Lou Holtz were absolutely paranoid about scouts giving information to their opponents. Uh, Lou would uh, once a year give this speech about how scouts were untrustworthy and they would give uh information and et cetera, et cetera. I can almost recite it verbatim. And uh and, and and uh other schools were closed. Joe Paterno was famously closed uh for all but one 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 week a year. So uh one week a season. So uh, the the bottom line is that it's all changed now uh because of the technology so you didn't have to scrounge the way you did in the old days. Uh, You know, you'd spend three days at Michigan, for example, because you'd have to look at Penn State tape at Michigan. Joe Mm -hmm. didn't have (laughs) – Joe (laughs) knew what was going on, but he he didn't want the scouts on campus except for the one week a year, which had to do with a (laughs) supposedly apocryphal story where the the Redskins had signed somebody out from underneath them that he didn't think was leaving school. Uh, It's a long, apocryphal story. We're not worth telling here, but – those days are, are are pretty much gone, and 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 there's really a, a lot of cooperation. Again, based on you know Dabo and, and Nick principally making themselves so open, everybody else has to follow suit.
2: So you know um, we've talked about how you you go into the season with the say national stuff, Blasto stuff um you're generally familiar with the program. How often are you sitting there, not the cut ups, but when you're just watching you, you know the whole uh team tape where you're you're you thought you were there to look at one guy, but another guy really does jump out at you unexpectedly and you know that he's somebody you should be really following
3: not very often, very often um and that's particularly true at the at the executive level of the cross checkers the The uh, directors, the general managers, Um, the area scout—at least in our system, everywhere I've been—is because of once once juniors began to come out again after you created the furor and Herschel came out. uh, The uh, uh, everybody, every area scout's responsible for everybody on the team, so he has to know. Uh, who who may be coming out early, who's thinking about coming out early, and and he's got to do them. So he's got got a really appropriate and voluminous knowledge, basically, of everybody. But the GM and the pro director and sometimes even the cross-checker because he has so many other players to look at. There are only two cross-checkers, generally speaking, one who's east of the Mississippi and one who's west of the Mississippi. So they have a lot of players to look at. Um, it's more, uh, it's more, uh, uh, what's the word? I'm searching, for? course. It, 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 it often happens that a guy will jump off the film at you that you didn't, you didn't know. About. I'll give you, I don't want to take too much time, but I'll give you two examples. Uh, I just heard this third hand from a reporter who was doing an interview with Kirk Ferentz, the head coach at Iowa. He recalled that I had been there watching film of somebody else. I can't recall who it was. It might have been Dallas Clark. Uh, I'm not certain. Uh, I I was talking to him about the players and I said, by the way, who's 33? He said, that's (laughs) Bob Sanders.
1: He's (laughs) going to be my son.
3: (laughs) That's (laughs) right. Yeah, so he became a member of the family that day. Yes, <laughs> uh, and, and 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 then um, th- this is uh, you know less known than Bob, but uh, I was watching Rutgers film, and I can't tell you who I was looking at uh, early in the in the in the draft process. You know, sometime in in March, right right after the combine, and I this middle linebacker kept. Making plays, and so I went down the hall to the director and said, "Who the heck is the middle linebacker from Rutgers?" And he said, "I got to go look it up." So he looked it up. He says, his name is Gary Brackett. So I mm-hmm. said, "Do we have measurables on him?" He said, "Yeah, yeah, we we got him at the pro page." So he gave me the measurables, and all the measurables were fine. And I said, "Okay, let's put this guy on the priority free agent list." And uh you know, we, we, he was the last guy we signed on, on draft day as a collegiate free agent for 2500 bucks, as I remember. And uh, he ended up being our captain and played middle linebacker for us for nine seasons. Yeah. Wow. So,
1: so when you're watching tape like that, what are the things? Because, I mean, I think NFL Game Pass has made all of us fans. I know it's made me dangerous in the sense that now that you have access to game tape and the coaches tape, uh, we think we all know. <laughs> things that we don't know what are the things that the scouts or you are looking for when you watch this tape I mean obviously we probably don't have the time to go position by position but are there certain things that just pop that you go hey these are the things that I should be looking at or I should be seeing when I'm watching tape
3: yeah well there's a difference between watching tape uh, analytically and watching it as a fan when you watch it analytically you have in your mind a mini scouting report which is broken into three, basically three categories. The first category is, is non-applicable or very little application. And, and that's, that's the, the psycho- mental and psychological and personality part of it, the so-called intangibles. Although you can see some of that on film. The second part is, is universal, quads, quickness, agility, balance. Uh, that's what it takes to play the game. Add speed to that in today's game. Uh, So you're you're absolutely looking for that. And then the third thing is position specifics, such as with defensive linemen, takeoff. How quickly do they get off the ball? Heavy hands. What does that mean? Heavy hands means that when a defensive lineman puts his hands on an offensive lineman, he can jolt them. And he can control it. So you're looking for heavy hands on defensive linemen. And and you're looking for the ability of a defensive lineman to change direction quickly, aggressively, explosively, and fluidly. Because if they're going to be good pass rushers, they have to be able to change direction. Uh, So... Those you're looking you have this template in your mind that you've been taught when you're an area scout. Here are the things that you have to grade every single day on every player that's in your mind as you look at the particular player and those specific the position specifics are are some are more important than others so let's talk quarterback, which is the one everybody um sort of concentrates on in the first instance. With the quarterback, the mental part will show up because it will show up in quickness of release, quickness in the ability to process what the defense is doing. So the immortal Dominelli, who was with me for 20 years, used to say, a receiver is never more open than when he's open. What does that mean? It means that you have to anticipate, as a quarterback, him getting open and throw the ball before he's open. Because he'll never be more open than when he's open. Right. So that's mental. You can see that. That's processing. You can see that on the tape. The second is quickness of release. See it, release it. No wasted uh, movement. Uh, no windup delivery. None of that. Get it out. Boom. And the third is accuracy. Are they accurate? And this goes to what is called ball placement. Uh, if, the re- if the quarterback is able to place the ball on a covered player in a manner in which only that covered offensive player can touch the ball, then he is capable of being a winning pro quarterback. Uh, so, for example, in the NFL, if a player's running a 17 yard out and he's covered and the DB has inside position on him, meaning that he, 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 he hasn't, there's, there's no space between the two, and the DB can go for the ball, the quarterback has to throw that ball low and away so that only the receiver can get it that the half step that he has on the DB is able to allow him to make the play because of where the ball is placed. If the quarterback throws it up and in, it's likely to be an interception and certainly a breakup. So that's what you're looking for. And if you don't see that, then you mark it down placement minus, you know, uh, Ability to process, minus or plus. You know, I always kept a little pad. I had a pad next to me with pluses, columns, pluses, and minuses. And and I I would just simply make a note, plus or minus, in the appropriate column. That template is in your head, which is why general managers who have never done personnel work, who have been on the business side or the PR side, don't generally, should not generally involve themselves in personnel evaluation because that template is not in their heads. You have to have done it in order to have that in your head.
2: You know, uh, the, your, your comment about uh, explosiveness from offensive linemen and then going back to what we were saying about sort of the show that is the combine on the field reminds me of something uh, that Gene Upshaw always used to say <clears throat> when they would say to him, hey, Uppy, what's your 40 time? And he goes, you show me a play where an offensive lineman has to run 40 yards, and I'll tell you this, but I'll kick your ass for five yards. (laughs) Because, right, Bill, the explosiveness is what it's about. I mean, firing off the wall.
3: Yeah, it's true. The sooner, Bill Walsh used to call it beating the opponent to the punch, the sooner you get there and the the sooner you're able to exert exert force, the better. Marv Levy told a, a famous story which I've never forgotten, and and it's highly characteristic as well. He was the head coach at William & Mary. And Vince Lombardi did not allow, in those days, any college coaches to come in to visit camps. Uh, nowadays, again, that's changed, but in those days it didn't. But uh, he wrote Lombardi and asked him if he could come in, and Lombardi re- re- said yes. So he was in there with two other college coaches who had received these special invitations to come to green Bay and watch the pack, the Packers in preseason. And they were sitting having dinner with Lombardi one night and not Marv, but somebody else said to coach Lombardi, how fast does Paul Horning run? What's his 40 and Lombardi roughly replied, what the hell do I care? Fast enough.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh... Um here's something that you you know you always hear debated back and forth, just sticking for with quarterbacks for a second, okay? Um arm strength. You know when you got that sheet in your head and and we you know and we know about you know the Joe Montanas of the world, you know, where do you put arm strength, you know, in proportion to accuracy, ability to process quickly, a quick release and so on.
3: Far down the list below all of those. Um there are there are two things that drive me crazy when I listen to non-football people describing uh, describing the evaluation of talent. The first is with quarterbacks, and they get so excited over arm strength. He can throw it through a wall. Yeah, so what? What about all the <laughs> <Great>. other things? <laughs> right. And then offensive uh, linemen, particularly guards and centers, and, and without question tackles, or what we call road graders, people who are great run blockers but do not have the quickness and agility and balance to be pass blockers. He's a road grader. He can move a building. Wow, is this guy phenomenal. Yeah. Can he pass block? <laughs> can he block light training? Can he block Robert Mathis? Well, I don't know. Well, maybe you ought to find out because he's going to do that (laughs) 60% of the time. He's going to road grade about 40% of the time. So the bottom line is arm strength is highly overrated. The only question with arm strength is, can he make all the throws? Can he make that uh, 17-yard? Can he throw that 17-yard out? Can Can he... can he get the ball there in time? Does he have a velocity to do it? There are players, uh, Virgil Carter being one that comes to mind immediately, who did not have that arm strength, by the way. And, and here's why Joe Montana succeeded. It was because of Virgil Carter. The Cincinnati Bengals had a quarterback named Greg Cook. The quarterback coach and de facto offensive coordinator was Bill Walsh. Bill told me the story. Uh, Greg Cook tragically uh, blew out his shoulder and ended what might have been a terrific uh, career in the days when a shoulder injury to a quarterback was just the end. And the backup was Virgil Carter, who, in Bill's words, couldn't throw from here to there. And so Bill had to reinvent the offense. They had Isaac Curtis, who was a big downfield receiver. He had to reinvent the offense so that they could throw balls that Virgil Carter could throw accurately. Now he was accurate and he processed well. And so Bill invented what eventually became the West coast offense, which was filled with check downs and crossing routes, uh, in, in, in intermediate areas that Virgil Carter could throw. And so when Bill got to San Francisco and, and brought the offense fully formed with him to San Francisco, uh, I remember uh, talking to a coach who was at Joe Montana's workout who said, ah, he doesn't have enough arm strength. He did. He's not, you know, he's not going to make it uh, just not good enough. Third rounder. Yeah. Great runner, great competitor, very smart, very accurate, lacking arm strength, put him in the third round. The Walsh took him in the third round, but knew differently because largely he had to reinvent the offense because of Virgil Carter. So uh that proved once and for all that 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 this this cannon for an arm uh, uh you know description that you hear is really not germane can he mm-hmm. make all the throws if he can that's fine
2: mhm uh, what, you know, we talked about the importance and, and how you view tape differently than civilians do, uh, but with with scouts themselves or GMs w- when they get there, um, are there things that you can observe about a player when you actually go that day and watch him practice that you can't see on the tape? Do you glean different things from seeing it live?
3: Well, the first thing you do is see him up close and personal, see his body type, and that's. That's really important. Um, So, you know, college players still have some growth to them. Um, They're going to have one more growth spurt, usually between ages 22 and 25, where they really become fully formed men. It's largely because they're not going to class and their diets are better and they're working on football, you know, seven days a week, 18 hours a day. Um, so you get a chance to see their body types.
1: Um,
3: You get a chance to see them interact with their teammates.
1: Uh,
3: Most coaches would prefer that you leave before team uh, period begins. Uh, Typically, a practice will be broken into uh, individual, group, and team. Uh, individual and group takes up half the practice and team takes up the rest. And uh, they would prefer that you leave during team simply because it makes sense not to have information floating around. And it makes good sense from a scout's point of view to, you know, not be in, put yourself in that kind of a position. Um, but occasionally you'll have the opportunity to see team, and that's especially true at schools that are wide open. And so here's an experience that I had. Jeff Saturday was playing center for University of North Carolina, and uh, they had 12 guys on that team that were drafted. uh, Through all, you know, juniors and seniors, 12 were drafted. And and yet in every practice, Jeff Saturday more than held his own against a guy that was going to be a high draft choice. But more importantly, everybody gravitated toward him. If there was a question on the offensive line, they'd ask Jeff Saturday. If somebody wasn't doing the job, he kind of you know, come on, let's go. Uh, it was clear that he was the leader, and uh, and so I just made a mental note of it. And we were in Carolina at the time, and 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 we took a center early in the draft, Frank Garcia, who ended up starting for us. So we didn't have room for another center as a free agent. I got to Indianapolis the following year. And, uh, and uh, one of Jeff's teammates was with us in Indianapolis, a defensive player. And he came in and he said to me, uh, have you ever heard of Jeff Saturday? I said, sure. I was with the Panthers. He said, oh yeah, I forgot about that. He said, uh, well, you know, he's working in a, in a Lowe's in Atlanta. And he was, he was signed as a free agent by Baltimore last year, but never got a chance. And uh, and I said, give me his phone number. And he said, well, all he wants is just a chance to work out. I said, just give me his phone number. So he gave me his phone number, and I called him, and identified myself. And, and frankly, he didn't know me from Adam, I'm sure. And he was very polite. I said, Jeff, I want you to come in here, and 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 we're going to sign you. And he said. You mean you want me to come in and work out? I said no. I want you to come in here and sign a contract. <laughs> and I said, well, okay. <laughs> so, I'll be one. We gave him his physical exam, signed him to the contract, and I went to Howard, our offensive line coach, and I said, we just signed this kid Jeff Saturday from Carolina. I saw him play a hundred times in Carolina, and, and and you know he he's 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 really he's got something special going for him. You're going to look at him. And want to throw him out of the room as Baltimore did when they got him in the building and saw his body type. He was too short, uh, too small. He looked like a little fat guy at that point that you'd see as a bartender or something. And, uh, <laughs> and so Howard said, I said, just give him a chance, Howard. He said, okay. Okay. So, uh, we put him on, the, as I recall, we put him on the practice squad and he was working out for about two weeks. And, uh, Howard stopped me after practice one day, and he said, "I'm I'm moving him to guard, because that's the way we're going to get him active this year. We need him." And he said, "We'll move him to center in the off season, and he'll be there for ten years." And when I tell the story at banquets, here here's the tagline: Howard was wrong, even though he's the greatest offensive line coach I've ever been around, because Jeff played for fourteen years. <laughs> <laughs> So the moral of the story is what you see in practice and what you see live in games, the interaction, uh, the leadership, uh, the ability to to stay focused when everything is is going poorly is really invaluable. If you're a good scout, you see it.
2: Uh, Do you get the chance to see – You know when the coaches are coaching, uh, how a guy either takes criticism, how quickly he picks up something. You know when they when they give him a a, uh, suggestion how to do it. I mean, are you you able to sense that from the sidelines?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Certainly, you can you can tell how quickly he processes because if he keeps making the same mistake over and over again, and the coaches have to recorrect him over and over again, that that's a clear tell. Um, Generally speaking, most guys handle criticism by their position coach pretty well because they're used to it. You know, every coach has a different style of coaching. Um, And and they're used to it. So that part of it, I never really registered with me as, you know, some coaches are really funny um, and they criticize with humor and some guys can be sarcastic and other guys are very straightforward and other guys are are very supportive. Um, the Tony Dungy was in that latter category. You know, he, he rarely would he raise his voice, and almost always he would, you know, he'd precede everything by saying, "Look, you're giving good effort," but, you know, it was it was there was never a, uh, "Hey, knucklehead," you know, right. uh, <laughs> that, that's that's old school. But there are some coaches who do it and 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 the players generally love them for it particularly at the pro level Uh, so that's not an issue but but certainly repeated mistakes are an issue and you can see it
1: from an ncaa standpoint at this phase the scouts aren't really allowed to have contact with the players are they
3: no no they're not the only time they have contact with the players is beginning with the all-star games Uh, up until then no, rarely would you ever have contact with a player, and you should never seek it out.
1: How aware do you think the players are that the scouts are there? Is that something you have to watch for personality-wise?
3: They're very aware, and the best programs sell that. You know, they sell the openness. They realize Nick and Dabo and, and, and you know Ryan Day at Ohio State, and Brian Kelly at Notre Dame, and many others recognize that the fact that the scouts are there uh, gives some motivation and they use it as motivation. You know, I've heard more than a few times a position coach or a coordinator say, you know, those guys over there, they're watching you dragging your sorry butt around here.
1: <laughs> you want a job?
3: <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's it. They're watching. You know, it, it, that's absolutely true. And just as an aside, uh, I got tired of seeing scouts from other clubs show up with flip-flops and, and shorts and T-shirts on, uh, you know, Tommy Bahama T-shirts on at, at practices. And so I, I provided, we provided clothing, uh, you know, logoed clothing for all of our scouts and required that they that they wear it when they come on campus. Number one, we want the university to know we're there. And number two, we want them to be dressed professionally, so uh lots of people you know followed suit on that and it and it's good, it's a motivational thing for the player.
1: So getting into, I mean, we mentioned a little bit with sort of the postseason process, but so now we've, we've gone to practice, we've seen tape, we've seen all the different elements. Now we get into the postseason portion of the process. I mean, can you walk us through sort of the significance of bowl games and then, you know, we, we can kind of move into, you know, the all-star games. But how important are our bowl games in terms of the, the process from a scouting perspective?
3: I think if you ask seven different people, they would give you seven different answers. I can only give you mine. I always felt that bowl games were really important. Now, because of the money involved, I know that players who are high-profile players who are not involved in the playoffs but but are pretty sure they're going to be first-round draft choices typically now more than half or so withdraw from the bowl game. They don't play. I don't mark that down with a red mark, but I must admit it sticks in my mind. I don't think we ever changed the player's grade because of it, but it sticks in my mind. Uh, So that's number one. Number two, a player's performance, in the bowl game to me really means something because by definition, he's playing against a top-notch opponent. Uh, you don't get to a bowl game unless you have a winning record. And in the more prestigious games, the New Year's Day games, or the, you know, the, the big games leading up to those games, you see players perform at a really, really high level against really, competition, and that's what you want to see. The most notable is Tom Brady going into I believe it was the Outback Bowl um, with Michigan. He'd already been benched during the season for close to half the season. Come on strong later in the season, particularly against Ohio State, and then whoever they were playing in the bowl game, he eviscerated. He was just He was the Tom Brady we've come to know and love. If you didn't watch the last third of the season and you didn't watch that bowl game, you didn't see the best of Tom Brady. So that's the most obvious reason why it's important. Joe Montana playing in the Cotton Bowl in in sub-freezing weather and literally about to suffer from hypothermia, leading his team to a win. Over a heavily favored Texas team. That's that's what you see in bowl games, and and obviously how you perform in the in the in the playoffs now uh, makes a, a huge difference. And I I, I dare say there's a, there's a player in the world who would think about withdrawing from a playoff game uh, because his draft status has already been in his mind secure. So. Uh, in my mind, it's really important. It doesn't, it doesn't wipe out the entire body of work that the guys put down for his, however many years he's played in college, but it is important. It is important. And it and, and it can be the difference between a uh, first rounder or a second rounder, or high in the first round or low in the first round. So that's important. Uh, the all-star games are another issue entirely, but, but, the bowl games to me are absolutely critical, and I would go to, I would go to you know, sometimes a half a dozen a year.
2: Can you talk a little bit about the All-Star Games and your, your feelings about those?
3: Sure. Uh, they're very important for a number of reasons. I mentioned before, that's the first time that the NFL coaches and the scouts get an opportunity to interact with the players and to test them uh, using now the written test that that everybody uses to measure psychology. Uh, Remind me to tell you a funny story about the the genesis of that with the Bills, but I'll I'll answer the question first. Um, Secondly, uh, they're in a milieu where, particularly in the Senior Bowl, they're being coached by pro staffs and they're being taught pro techniques and pro nomenclature, so you can see who adjusts quickly, who processes quickly who who gets it quickly, who's overwhelmed and and that's particularly true of the lower level prospect who is coming to the all star game and and mixing it up with the guys from the Ohio states and the Notre Dames and the Michigans and the and the Alabamas and the Clemsons um, can he hold his own that That's really dispositive for these lower-level players coming from Division II and Division Three schools and sometimes from even from a group of five schools. Um, that's less prevalent in the in the East-West game because that, that there aren't as many big-name players there. But still, you get to see them perform against a high-quality group of players. And you're on the field, and you get to hear them coached, and you get to hear them... Uh, you know, interact with their teammates, etc. cetera. Um, so it's very, very important. We, we, I learned this from Norm Pollum, who is my boss in Buffalo, and I've, I've adhered to it ever since. Don't downgrade a player by his performance in an all-star game. It's too small a sample size. But if a player shines in an all-star game, uh, Milia, Boy, note that and let's find out why. So Thurman Thomas, for example, MVP of the senior bowl. Was that an accident? Sure wasn't. He also proved that he could play without an MCL in his knee. So, you know, all of that <laughs> yeah. is very important. Um, back to the story of personality tests in the in the in the days of your the area scout would have to interview the player at an all-star game. And he would have to um, make a, a report based on his perceptions of what he saw and, and, you know, how the player answered these various questions and interacted. And so I went to a, to interview a player who who's now is a big-time commentator, so I won't mention his name. But he's outstanding as a commentator. And he was also outstanding as a as an interview. And about three quarters of the way into the interview I realized I was overmatched. I said this guy's way smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am I, what can I do to write a report? He's smarter than I am. So <laughs> then the reverse would happen. Or you'd go to interview someone and they would you would say to him, How 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 did you interact with your teammates? And he would give you an answer that you knew was written by the agent. It was as though yeah. he was a witness who had been prepped verbatim and rehearsed <laughs> the answers over and over again.
2: <laughs> it's the uh, let's let's practice your cliches, right? <laughs>
3: yeah, exactly right. Yes, yes. Nucleouche. And yes. so uh the from from uh the greatest baseball (laughs) movie ever made (laughs) absolutely absolutely so i went back and, and made a little note to myself this this system has to change so when i became general manager of the bills one of the first things i did was talk to mr wilson and his then wife jane who was a psychologist by training and practice and i said I'm not capable of interviewing these guys. I'm not a psychologist. I, I can't tell you whether they're telling me the truth or not telling me the truth or whether they're giving me answers that, 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 you know, they think I want to hear. And, and she said, no, you're a hundred percent, right. So we reached out to two psychologists at Canisius college in Buffalo and, and they said, Oh yeah, we have a test that, that we use to determine these various qualities and there were about five or six qualities that are really important drive, uh, mental discipline, et cetera, self-discipline, things like that. And, uh, so we said, okay, so we, we, we gave every prospective draftee the test. And, uh, in those days it took about 30 minutes to take, I think, but we had surprisingly good results in terms of people wanting to take it. And, uh, and then they interpreted the tests and gave us psychological evaluations of the players, and they were right on. And uh, I think we were among the first to do that in the National Football League, and then it spread very widely. And then finally, uh, when we got to Indianapolis, we worked with a psychologist named Dana Sinclair from Canada, who is a uh, – uh, she was a Canadian uh, Olympic athlete uh, as well as a Ph.D. in psychology – and, um, and she developed a short form, which was really, really thorough and really accurate. And, um, and she would deliver that to us, both in written and in PowerPoint form, uh, every player that was on our draft board. And she had the final say. If she said no, it was no. Now,
2: are the psychological tests pretty uniform, or is each team designing their own at this point?
3: No, each team designs its own, and there are a number of practitioners out there. There's a man named Bob Troutwein who invented uh, a, a very, very short and efficient version of the uh, of a psychological test called TAP. I think it stood for Total Athletic Performance, uh, which took only about 15 minutes or so to take, and, uh, and, and he had a number of teams for a number of years. I think he still does. Um, There were, and and there are any number of other people in the business. Uh, And, you know, it varies from, uh, at one point in time, the Giants employed a psychologist who, his test took well over an hour. And people used to complain that the Giants would dragoon players and keep them there for an hour. You could never get at them. (laughs) Uh, But, but Everybody does it, and and it's usually pretty efficient. And uh, it's done at the All-Star Games. Every night, the players are made available at the All-Star Games for teams to test and and interview. Some teams still do interviews. Um, In fact, many do. And then at the combine, there is a um, uh, 20-minute – not 20 minutes. It's actually three hours every evening uh, where the players are allowed to go from team to team. Uh, I think you're allowed now to only do forty or fifty interviews at the uh, at the combine but they're they're twenty minutes each and and you can interview them but you line the players up and then you interview them and they move on to a to another interview and and the the we used to after having bad experience ourselves doing the interviews we let the psychologist Dana do it, and she did a bang-up job in many cases. We could just sit there and listen uh, as she interviewed the players. And because she was a uh, uh, striking-looking woman, uh, <laughs> there were players would volunteer to come and be interviewed by her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: you, know, you know, Bill, it's funny you mentioned that because I remember, you know, when. Uh, Uh, when we were doing it in the Alliance and the interviews and everything, remember we we, we said, this is like speed dating, right? The the one person stays at the table and the other guys move around. So that there's, that that was probably the most popular speed date you had (laughs) in the room right there.
3: We didn't have any trouble getting people to show up. That was sure. So as we,
1: so as we move through the process, we got into the combine earlier. Let's switch our attention a little bit to pro days. So, as we get into pro days, how do these pro days work and what is their significance in the process and what, what typically are scouts' roles in them?
3: Well, first of all, pro days are designed to have everybody in the National Football League who wants to come, come to the campus and watch every player on that particular school who's draft eligible perform on the, on the basic test you know, the basic, uh, uh, measurable tests, height, weight, speed, 40 yard dash, triangle drill, etc. Uh, that's one component of it. And then, uh, they generally will take, uh, players and, uh, and they go with the individual pro position coaches and they will work out on individual position drills. Um, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the, in, in the podcast, the morning usually begins somewhere between 7.30 and 8, where everyone gathers in the team meeting room and the head coach makes a, a presentation and talks about the individual players who are prospects. Um, the, the pro liaison will, will do so in more depth and will answer questions if people have them. Uh, the trainer will come in and give a lengthy presentation for the first time. On what a player 's injury history is, and they will have a handout for you which which basically summarizes everything that 's been said. and as i said they' they 're very forthcoming uh You then move usually to the indoor facility and uh and the the testing begins height weight speed uh various drills and then uh after that 's done then you will, you will go to uh, the individual position groups where the players will work out. Now, for about the last 10 or 12 years, we have allowed players from uh, lower-level schools come work out at the pro day of a big school because it's easier on the scouts So, for example, at um, Rutgers, players from uh, smaller schools, LaSalle, for example, uh, Widener College, Glassboro State, who are prospects, might come and work out. They have to be prospects. It's by invitation. But they would come and work out. Not very many of them, but. But, it, you know, it's it's of interest. It, it, they're not big enough to have a pro. The schools are not big enough programs to have a pro day of their own. So uh, we allow, with the school's concurrence, the kids from smaller programs to come work out. Uh, and, and a lot of guys have been discovered that way. Uh, and then once the, uh, once the uh, workout part is over, now you're, you're in the you know, 1 p.m. area, 2 p.m. area. Um, if a GM uh, or a head coach wants to meet with an individual player, um, they typically will do so then. Um, if they want to meet with the head coach, they'll typically do so then. Um, and the head coach almost always makes himself available. And, uh, and and has individual meetings with the high-level people. He rarely meets with area scouts or even cross-checkers in depth, but he'll do it with the GM and the personnel director or the head coach. Um, and so uh, that's, that's what occurs on pro days. What you see in the workouts, which now tend to be scripted either by strength coaches or by uh, agents, uh, what you see on television is basically useless <laughs> because there, there's, there's there's no opponent, and right. they're going through a yeah. a, a scripted uh, a scripted with, for quarterbacks and receivers a scripted set of routes and and, and so on that 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 they practiced a hundred times. So, you know, people saying, "Oh." He never missed a throw. If he missed one, it's yeah. a big black mark.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right. Something that's gonna be more than just stick in your mind problem.
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a problem by definition.
1: Yeah.
2: It's 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 uh it's like blowing your lines in the school play.
3: <laughs> exactly.
1: But that's got to that's gotta be different in the individual workout, though, right? Like, that's is the individual workout when the teams actually get a hold of the player? There's probably more value in that than the pro day workout.
3: Yeah, thing. those are called private workouts in the parlance of the industry. For all but the top five or so consensus players, and, and by the way, the consensus is almost always wrong, but nonetheless, <laughs> the agents believe in the consensus. For all but the top five, uh, you can get a private workout anytime you want. Uh, For um, the top five, sometimes, not often, but sometimes, some agents will be standoffish and say, for example, uh, to Kansas City, you're drafting 29th. You don't have no chance to get Patrick Mahomes. He's gonna be done he's he's gonna be gone before ten. And so, you know, as a general manager or or a head usually the general manager, you gotta push a little bit and say, How the hell do you know we can't trade up to get him? You don't know that. (laughs) I need to work this guy out. Coach Reed is taking his time to come and work the guy out. You're gonna tell me he's not gonna work out for us? (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and you know, oh well, yeah, okay, but, but, but we have to script it. No, no, you're not scripting it. We're not take, bringing the head coach of a, a of an NFL team to come and watch a, a workout that you design. Uh, well, you know, our quarterback consultant designed it. If he was any good, he'd be coaching in the National Football League. Not, <laughs> you know, those those are not good conversations <laughs> or or pleasant. Let me say.
1: <laughs> Do you hold that against the player or just the agent?
3: No, no, just the agent, and and right. most times, most times they will acquiesce. And by the way, I'm I'm making up the Patrick Mahomes just as an example. I'm sure they didn't they didn't bother, you know, they didn't have any compunction about us working out. Uh, but the bottom line is that uh, in some cases you have to push a little bit to get. Uh, a private workout, particularly for the for the high guys. And the more inexperienced the agent, the more you have to push. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, for everybody else, you can have as many private workouts as you want. But now you can bring in 30 guys to your facility. You can't work them out, but you can bring them in and interview them and test them all you like and have them see the doctors Um, so the individual workouts are not quite as prevalent as they used to be. But again, if you're in the top 10 and you're considering a guy, you, you, you probably want an individual workout. You probably want the head coach there. You probably want the coordinator and the position coach to put them through their paces and, uh, and do it individually because there is no value at all to the, to the scripted workout.
2: So, uh, you know, you've now gathered uh, uh, what I think Howard Cosell would have said, a plethora of data, um, and somehow you've got to bring this all together. Could you, without revealing anything proprietary in anybody's specific uh, methodology, Bill, could you take us through sort of both the form and substance of what a prospect report looks like, uh, and when you're looking at it, you know, is there is if there's one thing that's Oh, everything's good, but this is a disqualifier or, you know, just just give us a feel for what it looks like, you know, how you use it and so
3: on. Well, it's information, how the information is interpreted is is another issue. And so in that sense, the scouting report is like an intelligence report uh, prepared by an intelligence operative in the field. Uh, He sends it to headquarters. And he gives the who, what, where, when, why, and how. And and then headquarters decides exactly what value there is and formulates policy uh, based on at least how they interpret that particular uh, intelligence report and how they interpret other people who are studying the same data. Uh, so in that sense, it's exactly analogous. Mm-hmm. Um, the original report, as as I mentioned earlier, has three basic categories. The first is the mental and psychological, four basic categories, excuse me. The first is the measurables, height, weight, speed, and how you do on the various tests that you your club deems to be germane. Second is psychological. Third is general characteristics that a football player has to have, quickness, agility, balance, explosion, strength, etc. And then the fourth is uh, called position specifics. So let's take an offensive lineman, for example. How quick is he off the ball? How agile is and, and what balance does he have when he pulls? How agile is he in moving his feet in pass protection? Does he go? Does he backpedal quickly, or is he slow-footed? Is he? Can he maintain balance, or can he be knocked off balance by uh, one blow from a defender? Um, the most important part of pass protection, which I never hear spoken about, by any analyst on television, and which every – I've been fortunate to be around great offensive line coaches, Jim Ringo, uh, Cal Murphy in Canada, um, Howard Mudd, Tom Bresnahan. Every one of them talks about anchor ability at the contact point in pass protection. What do I mean by that? The defender is backpedaling. His arms are extended. He's trying to keep... I'm sorry, the, the offensive lineman is trying to keep the defender off him. At some point in time, the defensive, the great defensive lineman is going to break that that arm length down. He's going to get the, drive the arms of the offensive lineman in toward his body. At that point, the offensive lineman has to anchor, drop his butt, and... Bench-press that defensive lineman to allow the quarterback to step up and get rid of the ball. That is critical, the ability to anchor and bench-press that rusher. If you can't do that, you can't play. So all of that is measured and graded by position. And then it's all fed into the computer. And the first cut is height, weight, and speed. So if a, if a player uh, doesn't have the requisite height, doesn't have the requisite, requisite speed, uh, doesn't have the requisite, requisite weight, the computer will kick it out because the parameters are in there. Uh, for example, uh, wide receivers. Uh, when we were in Indianapolis, if you were four five one or higher, four five one was the cutoff point. If you were higher than four five one, the computer would spit it out. So, we're going to say a guy who's four five seven would we reject him? No, but he's not going in the first round. Uh, Jerry Rice obviously is the exception that proves the rule, but. You know that's what you have the computer for. That's what you have all those systems for. So that part of it is the is the first cutoff. And then then you'll do a deep dive into the other areas. Psychological comes last because you don't get that information until very late in the process. But we'll do a deep dive into in, into the. Uh, Quickness, agility, balance, and if the guy's quickness and agility and balance grades are low, he's probably he's probably not going to make it. So he goes by the wayside. Then you get into the into the uh, position specifics and how the guy plays the game. And so if he doesn't measure up, and each each position specific is graded with a numerical grade. If he doesn't measure up, then out he goes. And then finally, there's what we call a one-liner where the scout's more than one line, but it's the, that's the nomenclature. Um, the scout writes a couple of sentences on what he thinks the player is and where he thinks the player ultimately belongs on our draft board. And so when you read all of that, you now say to yourself, okay, we started with 500 guys. We can eliminate 250 of these guys because they don't measure up in one or more critical uh, qualities, what we call critical factors.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: And that's the whole purpose of the report is to develop a profile on every player and decide and let the computer help you decide who among these 500 have the requisite qualities to play in the National Football League? And then we'll do a deep dive into the other qualities, psychological, mental, etc.
2: Is that when uh, we go back sort of t- in terms of your staff to the human element? You're, you, you whittle it down that last time, and then you're actually looking at those, reviewing the stuff yourself, as opposed to um, having a computer do the things?
3: No, um, it's done in a very organized process. It varies from team to team in terms of how you do it. Uh, I have come to – I've actually, based on experience I've had since leaving uh, the NFL and and surveying people and talking to people, I I would change if I were doing it now. But but I'll I'll, I'll give you a general overview of how it works. You usually finish – your uh, in-season scouting certainly by January 15th. You then bring the scouts into the office and you sit down and you do what's called reading through every player. There's a huge book filled with scouting reports. You literally read the report and everybody reads it together. The uh, area scout and the and the cross checker uh, usually are the ones who do who do the reading. Both will read their reports. And the guy's uh, biography and, and his numbers will be up on a screen, so you can see it. And um, and and the first first go around is to simply eliminate people. The second go around. First go-around usually takes a week. The second go-around will, will be trying to put people into into clumps. First and second rounders. Third and fourth rounders. Fourth round and below. Three clumps. And now you may go back and, and, and look at some film. Say, you know, and, and other people will be, you know, the other cross checker will be in there. As a GM, I tried not to be involved, and and because you, you don't want to sway the other scouts, mm-hmm. uh, put your thumb on the scale, so to speak. But but the other scouts will weigh, in. they've seen the player the bowl game. They've, they you know they're cross checking a position. Every every scout cross checks a position, so. They'll, they'll, there'll be a lot of discussion. I'll tell you a funny story about the about the general manager attending the January meetings, December or January depends on what the calendar is in a given year. Um, Tom Telesco, became, who's now the general manager of the Chargers, became our uh, pro scouting director, our scouting director when uh, Tom Ilie retired, player personnel director. And so I said to him, uh, hey, Tom, when are you going to begin the meetings? He said, uh, next Monday. I said, oh, great. Okay, what time? The usual time, 8 o'clock. I said, oh, okay, I'll pop in. A- and there was silence. Tom's a-, a very low-key person anyway. But I said, "What? what, is there something wrong? He said, well, you know, Bill, I'd rather you didn't attend. <laughs> I said, <laughs> 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 Why? <laughs> And he said because you have seen a lot of these players. And if you voice an opinion, the rest of the room is gonna say, Okay, the boss likes this guy or the boss doesn't like this guy and that's gonna that's gonna skew the view we get from everybody. I said, Good thinking, buddy, good thinking. Keep me posted. <laughs> so I also jumped that I got thrown out of my own scouting meeting. <laughs> <laughs> but but it but it it makes perfect sense,
0: yeah, uh,
3: so that process will take you basically to the combine, and at that point, you will have a preliminary board, the official numbers are not in, they mm-hmm. come by the combine, the medicals are not in they come after the combine, the psychological is not in because it's still being gleaned and finished up during the combine, and so. The board that you have then, before you enter the combine, is really the one that reflects how best the guy plays football. And amazingly, all the time we were in Indianapolis, we called it the December board because those meetings started in December. It's immaterial when you do them. The, the That board, the first board, was really the most accurate one which tells you why scouting is so important. Because when you looked at that board and then found out four years later who played in the National Football League and who played well, that board was the most accurate
1: one. Did that change your emphasis as you knew that, did that change your emphasis on the things that would happen after that board as you went down the process and started to realize, "Hey, this is when we have our cleanest, best information you know obviously the the medical and the psychological is vitally important, but from a football standpoint, everything else kind of can muddy the waters between the December board and draft day
3: uh, We had a saying again invented by Dominly, "Let the board talk to you." That's you'll hear that guys that work the uh, in our program repeat that over and over again as you get toward draft day and and they'll talk about it post draft, yeah, we let the board talk to us that's who was there, so we have to take them but that that's that's true throughout the process because that's why you have scouts. if you trust them and you know they're good and your process is good, then that board which is which was measures basically high-level football talent and efficacy is the one that speaks only to that. The other things are disqualifying. So, for example, if a guy is not psychologically suited to play in the NFL for whatever reason, he's not. Don't take him. If his character doesn't meet our standards, don't take him. If when the position coach works him out and you trust the position coach's judgment and he comes back and says, I don't really like him because he can't do these things, then you take that into consideration. But those studies that we did told us, let the board talk to you even in December. Be very careful about disqualifying people at that point in time for reasons other than football reasons.
2: Is there any way if if if, are people making mistakes then when they overemphasize what happens after you know information they get after that uh, December board?
3: Yes, yeah, I I think it. I I think you run the risk of making mistakes unless you're able to separate the wheat from the chaff on on the things that come after you've evaluated the guy as a football player, And, and it'll be pretty contentious at times depending on the building that you're in um, example uh, and I, I by the way I'm not I'm not in any way knocking this player in fact I won't even use his name because <clears throat> I hope he makes it he still has time to do so but he played a position that was overvalued and happened to be weak in that particular draft now it turned out that the guys that were lower draft choices have performed great, but but the fact of the matter is that it was generally considered weak. And the mantra that you that the owner and the marketing director and the lawyer and the cap guy hears on television because they don't sit in any of the meetings, uh is Oh, we 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 got to get this guy. We got to get he's. We got to get a franchise quarterback. Got to get a franchise quarterback. Absolutely have to get one. So now, when the owner does come in, and you look at a player who's a quarterback who has been rated, let's say, thirty first, thirty second, fortieth, second round player. Mhm. Oh. Everybody's talking about him being a first round player. Well, he's not. Why? He doesn't have nearly enough experience. Well, yeah, but you know, are we going to get him at, 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 even at 32? No. Oh, shouldn't we push him up? Yeah, I guess we have to discuss whether we want him or not. Yeah. How far you want to push him up? Well, people are talking about him in the top 10. And, and can we develop him? I'm okay taking him that early. If we can develop him, is he going to develop into a great player? Well, who knows? We're not clairvoyant. We're not Karnak. You know, we don't have the answers in an obelisk. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, why would you want to take him that high? Well, who else can we take? Well, an offensive lineman. Oh, we're going to turn down a quarterback for an offensive lineman? That's crazy. Those discussions, in fact, do go on. And that's why people, you know, they don't rocket up the draft boards the way you hear it described on television. That's completely wrong. But people do move up from where they were on the initial board because of outside concern. And sometimes they're justified. If the guy's good enough, hey, if he should be if if, if if pat if you took pat Patrick Mahomes at one and not ten, you'd write either way, correct?
1: Yeah, that's a win.
3: <laughs> yeah. It, it 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 it's the it's whether or not the guy can play that is what really counts. The outside parts of it, the extraneous parts of it, no. The idea of – this is another one that drives me crazy. You can't take a running back in the first round. Where does it say that? Right. right.
1: That's not the 11th commandment.
3: I went through the entire NFL record, uh, NFL rule book. Nowhere does it say you can't take a running back in the first <laughs>
0: round.
3: <laughs> does the name O.J. Simpson ring a bell? Does the name Barry yeah. Sanders ring a bell? <laughs>
1: And it's worked out okay for teams who have done it recently. Yeah, Yeah, it did. So
3: there's a lot of that stuff out there that, that, that it takes some discipline. It takes, not some, it takes a lot of discipline to shut that noise out and, and say, no, this is what we're going to do. And it takes an owner who trusts you, who trusts his personnel, people who trusts his general manager, who trusts his coach. And that is a tremendous, tremendous leap of faith on an owner's part because he's exposed to all the noise constantly. Don't forget, the people who are doing the drafting from the combine until draft day, other than to go home or to go to church, go home in the evening at 9 or 10 o'clock at night or go to church on Sunday, they never leave their office. They're in the draft room night, noon and morning, seven days a week, except if you go on the private plane to a workout where you're conducting meetings all the way on the plane and all the way home and then back into the bunker. So right. Right. They're, they're never exposed to 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 uh, the discussions. And if they are, if they're stopped on the way out of churches, I used to be from time to time they'd say, who are you going to take us? And they don't know. Too early. <laughs> get in the car and go back to work. <laughs> uh,
2: speaking of of those kind of conversations with the owners, uh, and, and uh, I, your modesty will preclude you from uh, commenting on this to a certain extent, but did it get easier when when you first started out and you were just Bill Polian to when you became Bill Polian? Would an owner be more likely to listen to a guy he knew was going to wind up in, in the hall of fame than he would, a uh, you know, an, a, a, uh, guy in the incipiency of his career.
3: I don't think so. I think it had more to do with, um, with the owner's knowledge of the process. The less like the less the owner was knowledgeable, uh, of, of the process, all of the nuts and bolts that we've spoken about during this podcast, um, the less familiar he was with those or the less familiar he wanted to be with those. Uh, and certainly those around him uh, who were had no familiarity uh, and then uh, with with the process uh, made it harder. That's why Jim Irsay was so great to work for. He'd been a general manager. He understood every nut and bolt in the process. And and he was as supportive as supportive can be. Great Jim Rousset story. He would come in on Thursday. In those days, the draft was on Saturday. He'd come in on Thursday and look at the board. And he might have his daughters or, you know, every once in a while, you know, a close associate with him. But, of course, he'd been following the whole process, looking at the film, you know, reading the scouting reports. And so he was up to date. And, uh, and so he said, well, tell me about the first round. So Tony said, well, you know, we got this defensive uh, end from University of Colorado. We really think he's good. Um, he's going to be, we think he's going to be an every down player. He's not Franey or Mathis, but he'll be the guy that'll play opposite Franey and he'll give us a, a, a really good starter And, uh, he said, Bill, "What do you think? I said, "Well, he's good. There's no question about it. And certainly, if he's there, we're taking him without question." But the guy I really have a feel for is Dallas Clark from from Iowa. You know, because he would give us a totally new dimension in in our in our passing game. And keep in mind, this was before Gronk, so you know there weren't very many athletic tight ends in the league at the time. He was Dallas was undersized. He was two forty five. I said, you know, he's not going to be a great blocker, but he doesn't have to be in our system. And what he does, catching the ball, running routes, running after the catch is spectacular. And he's just the finest person you could have. I said, there's, there's no difference between these two guys. Personality-wise, intelligence, none of that. It's all A+. plus. So we can't go wrong with either guy. So Jim said, well, you know, I trust you guys implicitly. Whatever you decide. You know, sit down the next two days, whatever you decide, uh, we'll go along with, and uh, it's going to be great. And he got up to leave, and he turned around, and he said, whatever it's worth, I'd go with Dallas Clark.
0: (laughs) Everybody cracked up.
3: (laughs) And Tony said, I guess I know who we're taking.
2: But he did trust you implicitly.
3: <laughs> he did. He did. Yeah, he was kidding. You know, he, yeah. it, it was my point being, he knew every nut and bolt that went into the process. And so when you have an owner who knows that, yeah, that's terrific. I, you know, when you have one that doesn't, that relies on things that he reads or things that he hears from other people, or that, you know, what he hears on television, that, it, that it's, it's a little more difficult or listens to people around him who are not privy to the information that we have.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: Great, Jim, mercy story. If you can envision the room, it's a a rectangle. The board, the front board is in front front of you. The decision makers sit, sit at a table facing the board, long table. The board runs the entire length of the wall, probably, you know, 24 feet or so in length and vertically by rounds, so one through seven. Behind is, is a board that contains all of those 5,000 guys that originally qualified, 500 guys that originally qualified. That's called the backboard. To the right is a board on a wall that outlines everyone. that's 1 to 336, everybody's choices by team. And then as they as they make a choice, that person's card is pulled off the front board and put under that team. So when we make a trade, we can look at, that board on the right-hand side and know exactly what picks people have and who they've drafted thus far. And then on the left is a board with the names of of, of basically three columns um, which which are labeled D&D, do not draft. And the first column is do not draft because of physical. Second column is do not draft because there are, you know, psychological issues, and then the third column is do not draft because of character, off-field issues, and so Jim had uh, a friend of his who re- followed the draft scrupulously, who came in the room, either our first or second draft, I can't remember what, which one it was, but he he looked at the at the DND columns, and the DND character column was filled with household names. And he said, we can't draft these guys. I said, no, that's right. We're not going to. And he said, this guy's a great player. This guy's a great player. And, yeah, I mean, he, he might be, but he, he doesn't fit for us. We don't want these kind of guys on our team. And uh, and he just shook his head. And, and, and Jim said, keep going, Bill. <laughs> 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 This is the way we do things around here, and that's for an owner to do that. Boy, that to stick with you and with a principle like that, you know, when you're turning down guys that you know are are really good football players, that's how you build champions.
2: You know, um, thinking about this whole process that we've gone through from a business standpoint. Um, Let me me throw out some numbers, and they may be wrong, but maybe ballpark, you know, close. Uh, So let's say you had 10 college scouts who are going to write, say, 4,000 reports on 1,500 players and 100 pro days and 600 interviews, uh, you know, where you're going to wind up taking out of all those seven draft picks. Let's say you're going to sign 10 uh, college free agents. Have you ever calculated – what the acquisition cost of each one of a player is, you know, in this enormous process that you have to go through.
3: Uh, Yes, every year. Uh, And and we did it in terms of both building and justifying the scouting budget. Um, The thing that that that's a, that's a, that's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is what does it cost you to make a mistake? In, in the days prior to the uh, rookie wage scale, which came along in 2011, in the days prior to that, you were looking at uh, close to a $50 million mistake.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And the scouting budget in those days was uh, a million and a half.
1: But there's another way to look at that, too. I mean, like, you know, so in so many businesses, you look at, you know, Cost per acquisition you know c p c you know uh cost per player chosen you you could develop a metric, but even in that algorithm, what's the r o i when you hit because if your scouting budget is say one and a half and you're making a fifty million dollar investment in a player that then is generating a hundred million dollars of revenue for the franchise and you know countless revenue for the league the cost per acquisition for that player on the positive side, you know, is astronomical and maybe even justifies a bigger spend on what your scouting budget is to begin with.
3: Well, that's right. That's, that's another way to look at it. Uh, I've always been asked the question the way Rick phrased it. And so my response has been always, it it has been what, what you heard, which is the cost of a mistake is, I mean, the cost of scouting is minuscule Compared to what it right, right. costs you to know, make a mistake, uh, but the but the uh, the opposite is true. It cost uh, uh, a million and a half to two million dollars to scout only Peyton Manning. What was the what was the payback?
1: Right, that's a billion dollar ROI. Yeah, what was the payback on Gary
3: Gary Brackett?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean it's astronomical. It's astronomical. That's
2: right. I mean clearly that's that's an essential part. Um, my, I would. Your initial answer Bill is is the one I was uh, sort of expecting. Scott, the only place I would disagree with you is that the, the, tele, the in terms of a revenue, the television contract is a television contract. Stadiums league wide are 97% sold out merchandisings, merchandising. So I, I actually don't think who you draft, changes the economics a lot it certainly changes the outcome and when you make a mistake as bill said and you waste a first round draft pick or a second round draft pick you're paying an egregious price but i don't think you the the, the justification for the, for the spend is really a direct economic one because i don't think it changes that much
1: Oh, no, I think it definitely does, though, from a valuation standpoint, just from a franchise valuation standpoint, right? Maybe it doesn't impact sort of the register economics. It it probably has some impact there. But to your point, it's not major. And it is also awesome that we have an agent arguing the uh, kind of owner's perspective on this, maybe a little. But (laughs) like, think about it from a valuation standpoint, right? Like, you know, prior to the Mr. Kraft, owning the Patriots and prior to this run what was the value of that team versus the value of the team now making strong you know draft decisions I mean think about like the Colts situation you know we kind of got into it a little bit in the Manning episode but what are the economics what what's the franchise valuation today you know versus pre-Bill and Peyton Manning coming in it's got to be I mean it's got to be almost five to ten x more now
2: yeah so I'm, I'm I'm so I'm I perhaps I'm mincing words here. I was only s- t- taking, uh, umbrage at the idea of revenue. I don't think it changes revenue in terms of changing the inherent value of the enterprise. I think it would be enormous, but I don't think year to year or game to game, you're going to get much more revenue one way or the other. That was my only point.
3: Okay. Here's the real life, uh experience with Peyton men. Um, When we got to Indianapolis, on the scale of where the sport ranked in terms of popularity, uh, by measured metrics in Indianapolis, the first was IU basketball. Second was the Indiana Pacers, because they were, in fact, a civic endeavor. The city had bought them rather than lose them in, in the ABA years. And then the the Simon family, who's the largest uh, mall developers in the world who are based in Indianapolis and subsequently bought them, they were considered a civic treasure. Uh, The third was Purdue basketball. The fourth was the Indy 500. And believe it or not, when we got there, fifth was Indiana high school basketball because They had just switched from the all-comers tournament to a class tournament, which has decreased the popularity of high school basketball dramatically in Indiana. But then it it was fifth. We were sixth. We were sixth. Um, Peyton Peyton came there, and uh, and we, we turned the corner and began to be a quality team. And at that point in time, it was clear that the building we were in was antiquated and certainly not going to be economically viable for the future. So we began um, a campaign privately speaking, with Jim Irsay largely doing it, speaking to the public to some degree, but most importantly to the politicians, about a public-private partnership to build a new stadium. And the answer at the outset was no, no, a thousand times no. So Jim had no choice but to begin to look for alternatives. And one of the alternatives at that point in time was Los Angeles. They had no NFL team. And the Coliseum and the Rose Bowl were available in the short run if you could secure the ability to build an NFL-style stadium in the long run. Uh, so Jim began to explore that, and, and really, I mean, didn't publicize it, but the powers that be knew that it was going on. And um, so the process wound forward politically as, uh, at a snail's pace. Um, fortunately, we had two very receptive governors, Joe Kernan and and Mitch Daniels, who understood the Colts' value. But more more importantly, all of a sudden, a stadium that was filled with visiting team jerseys for most of our games in the first and second years, all of a sudden turned completely blue with a plethora of number 18s, Peyton Manning, a plethora of Marvin Harrison jerseys, a plethora of Dwight Freeney jerseys. And all of a sudden, the Colts began to rocket up the charts in terms of popularity. We passed the Indy 500. We passed high school basketball. Uh, We passed Purdue basketball. And we were now on par with the Pacers, who by the way had a great team, that was Hicks versus Sticks. Larry Bird was yeah. the coach. It's, uh, Hicks versus the Knicks, I should say, uh, when they were challenging the Chicago Bulls for supremacy in the East, and and, and then IU basketball, where Bob Knight was still at, at at the zenith of his career. We began to we began to be on equal footing with them, and in the end. Uh, because of the good offices largely of the mayor and Joe Kernan and then his successor, Mitch Daniels, finally at the 11 hour and 59th minute, where we were actually prepared to make the move to Los Angeles, if necessary, we got Lucas Oil Stadium, public-private partnership, Commitment of the NCAA to hold the Final Four there once every five years and a regional final once every five years. Uh, ultimately got the Big Ten tournament there. And because of the work of, of Pete Ward largely and and uh, who's on the administrative staff and, and others with the Colts and Jim Ursay. Uh, we got a stadium that's second to none in america and in, in my opinion and i'm biased it's the best stadium in america in terms of size uh uniqueness architecture accessibility it, it, it it's the best and it's to this day filled with um, seventy six thousand people or seventy three thousand people in in in, in blue cold blue jerseys so uh I've often said, that's the house that Peyton built. There's no yeah. two ways about it. If there's no Peyton Manning, there's no Lucas Oil Stadium, and there are no Indianapolis Colts.
2: I definitely get it in the long run, for sure. You know, Bill, it's funny, because he, to have that much trouble for Jimmy in the beginning, you know, after, after Indianapolis had remade itself entirely as a, you know, as a mecca of sports, right, from getting the NCA to move there, uh, a lot of the NGBs, uh, you'd think if there were any city, uh, that would have been, you know, sort of willing to go along realizing what it could do. Uh, so it's, it's, I'm really surprised that it was that that tough of a fight.
3: It was difficult. It was very difficult. Of course, that you know, it, it's difficult in a lot of cities. But yeah. it, it was difficult there because, uh, you know, don't forget, Jim had only become the owner in '97. In uh and, and you know he succeeded his late father after a, a a bit of a court fight and uh uh with with uh, his father's uh uh widow second wife yeah. uh so you know he wasn't the known quantity other than as a like myself a, a, as a you know a worker bee um so his his word which was proven Hundred times over to be as good as gold, and uh, and 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 Peyton is what drove the process. But It came close to if there was no Peyton, if it had been someone else who flamed out at quarterback. Yeah, I don't have any doubt there wouldn't be any Lucas Oil State.
1: So, to that end, this kind of brings us to uh that point in the show where we're gonna pull our pull our audible and so uh my audible today kind of dives into this, so let's just say hypothetically, money was no object do do you think scouting? would be different in the sense that as we've gone through these episodes, one thing that kind of occurred to me was this idea of how an area scout is responsible for scouting all the players on all the teams sort of agnostic of position. Is there an argument that in total fantasy land that if money wasn't an object Scouting would be different, maybe in the sense that it could be like in other industries where it's positional expertise, where scouts could be assigned a position group, be expert at that position group, and maybe even scout the full continuum of the position from college to pro all the way through. Uh Is there a way in which if if the budget wasn't, say, one point five million dollars, that that continuum could be different and it could potentially, as we've talked about, give a team a competitive advantage since everyone's kind of doing it the same? Is that maybe a path forward to to gain an edge?
3: Well, certainly you're always looking to gain an edge. And it is a uh, it's a very interesting question. It's one I've pondered. And it's one I put. To about a cross section of about uh, ten or so GMs and directors of player personnel. Um, the area where you would most concentrate, I think, would be quarterback, because as we just talked about, the miss factor is so great there. If you were going to do it. The argument against, which I've gotten from numerous people, is you have the position coaches and the quarterback and the uh, coordinator involved in that process anyway. They're the experts. They're the additional scouts who weigh in. They're the guys that give you the expert opinion. And if they're good, as Tom Moore. And Bruce Ahrens were and Tom Moore and Jim Caldwell were during all my time and Tom uh, uh, Tom Moore and Frank Reich during all my time with the Colts uh, then you're in clover you don't have to do a thing you can stay with the process that you're that you're uh, working with and then and you refine that as technology gets better which of course is a given. Um, but if you don't have people of that ilk who are judging your quarterbacks, are you better off with a gray hair who's been around the business for 100 years, understands the, the position um, intrinsically, uh, a Marty morning wig, so to speak, is to bring a name off the top of my head, mm-hmm. who just covers the country Scouting all the quarterbacks. So you say to yourself, well, what's the value of that as compared to having the quarterback coach and the offensive coordinator do it? With respect to the top guys, probably not a lot, but it could make a difference. With respect to the medium and lower level guys, a lot. If you hit on one of those guys, If you hit on uh, somebody down low who becomes a success, even Russell Wilson, who was in the third round and many predicted wouldn't even go in the third round, you've hit the jackpot, as we, all of us previously stated. So to me, I'd be interested in pursuing that. Now, the other feedback that I've gotten is if you bring that person on and you don't have really secure people as your quarterback coach or your offensive coordinator, you're going to have a pretty unsettled building. You know, you, you create controversy just by doing that that doesn't need to be there. I think it's a valid point. Certainly worth considering. Um, But I also would not close the door on having a quarterback-specific scout because the position is so important and because finding a backup who you can trust and maybe finding a diamond in the rough that you can develop into a starter is really very important so if you if you translate that to the street level would you want a quarterback specific scout with Andy Reed there's probably no need for it would you want a quarterback specific scout with a coach who had a completely different uh, background and uh, you know a defensive background so to speak uh, or an offensive line background, so to speak, and uh, a uh, an offensive coordinator who was more uh, tilted toward the run game? Maybe. Maybe. So it's certainly worth considering. Other positions? No. The position coaches are, are perfectly good enough to do that. And if you're with a strong offensive line coach, as I have been throughout my career, I, would, I wouldn't I would even think of drafting an offensive lineman without that person's imprimatur. So I think it only applies to the quarterback position. So
2: let me ask you this, Bill, uh, and, and maybe we can end on this question. Um if you look back over all your years, and I'm talking about CFL, USFL, uh, National Football League, as, as a coach, uh, as a as a as a scout, as a GM, it, who are the two or three players? that Just at, when you scouted them, not necessarily how their careers worked out, but who are the two or three most impressive players that you you ever scouted? That where you just looked at someone until this. This is, you know, unbelievable.
3: Uh, Bruce Smith, Barry Sanders. Um, blah, 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 blah. It's, it's interesting how you're making me rack my brain here, <laughs> and, it, and it should come to the it should come to the fore immediately. Uh, Andre Reed. We, we used to always kid in our draft, and hey, look, you know, my wife can find Peyton Manning. Yeah. You know, she she can find Barry Sanders. I mean, who's that guy scoring all those touchdowns? You know <laughs> you, can, you can find them. Yeah, that's right. Know, right. Anybody can find those. Yeah, <laughs> it, 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 they jump at you. But but the it, the trick is 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 finding that guy in the third round who becomes a ten year starter, or that pre, or that free agent who becomes a ten year starter. That's how you yeah. build champions.
2: It's Jeff Saturday all the way.
1: It's the Gary Brackett story. All right, guys. Well, on that note, uh, we will end today's episode. And uh, as always, if you have any questions, feedback, feel free to hit us up on social media. Our Twitter handle is ifbillpolian. And we will be sure to keep it in mind for future episodes. Thank you again for listening. And that's all we got for now. See you guys.
2: See you, Scott. See you, Bill.
1: Take care.